Hello everyone and welcome to our eighth episode of The Sounds of Success. This episode we're going to be talking about the psychology of learning and we have two very amazing guests and one of them will be very familiar to y'all. He's our first repeat guest on the podcast. Yep, for sure. And so that will be Nisha Abraham, the assistant director of the Sanger Learning Center. If you all remember the episode that we did about using the Learning Center for tutoring, for studying for finals, really all sorts of workshops and study tips and skills and everything, she will be back today. And we will also be having Dr. Michael Mock with us. And Dr. Mock is a professor of neuroscience, and he is specifically from the Center for Learning and Memory at UT. All of his research is about understanding the brain and how learning contributes to how the brain and cells and synapses work. Uh, so it was really interesting to bring him in to talk about, you know, the, the science of learning and what's going on in your brain when we're trying to figure out this college experience. Definitely. And so we're hoping to start off on a little bit of a crash course of how the brain learns and a little bit more about what it means to learn. And then we will hopefully start talking about what are ways that you could have a more effective learning status coming up to your final season, which is coming up very, very soon. Yeah, what, what, what to do, what not to do in studying for finals, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, well, without further ado, let's head into the interview. Today, we have two really fantastic guests on The Sounds of Success. One you may remember from before, our first repeat guest, Nisha Abraham from the Sanger Learning Center. Thanks for joining us. We're so excited to have you again. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Yeah. And then a very special guest today, we have Dr. Michael Mock from the neuro di- neuro <laughs> Neuroscience Department. Wow. I really need to get my neuroscience going to <laughs> be ready for this uh, <laughs> podcast today on this rainy Friday afternoon. Dr. Mock, we're really excited to have you here. I see you come from all over the place. You spent some time in New Orleans and then you were at Stanford. And how long have you been at UT now? Well, thank you for having me. I've been at UT Austin 14 years, but I was at the UT Med School in Houston for 19 before that. So I've worked for the University of Texas for 33 and a half years now. Oh, you got that state service. (laughs) We were just talking about uh, (laughs) all of that in one of our meetings earlier this week. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here today. For our listeners who don't know, Dr. Mock is a brain expert. Uh, We brought him in today to kind of talk to us a little bit about how our brains work. You know, it's this weird thing where we all have a brain, but we don't even really think about how it works. Like we just know that it works and we're glad that it does. <laughs> right. So I think you're going to help us maybe understand what's going on behind the curtain of our eyes a little bit when it comes to, to learning and the psychology of learning. So again, thank you so much for being with us here today. It's really great to have experts like you on campus come talk to us about some of these topics. So I guess our first question is, and really for both of you, but, but a little bit more so for Dr. Mock, how did you first get interested in, in how the brain works and how it relates to how we learn and the mechanics of the brain? Well, I got interested in neuroscience as an undergraduate at the University of New Orleans. I started working in a lab, and it was one of those situations where the, the fish had found the ocean. I, I realized that it was something that I really enjoyed, and so I had the good fortune of going to graduate school. And it was in graduate school that I started working on brain systems. And the system that I happened to work on, the cerebellum, is a system that learns. And so then understanding learning and neuroplasticity and such became part of my tool set for what I needed to know about to make progress and to to push the ball forward with understanding the cerebellum. Wow. So for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the brain as you are. Uh, What's the cerebellum? What is that? What is that part of our brain and what's its kind of primary function? It's the part of the brain that you grab. If you grab the back of your neck, you're wrapping your hand around the cerebellum. It's most known for motor coordination. When you think of, of muscle memory, when people use the phrase muscle memory, there's no memory in your muscles. That's actually the cerebellum. So it's a part of the brain that learns to predict things, and that, that's actually how we make movements accurate, is the cerebellum predicts that if we're going to make this movement, this is how we do it. When it makes a mistake, then it's, it, it has an input that informs it of that, and then it uses learning then to do a better job next time. Interesting. So is it kind of like the autopilot 
part of our brains? Well, that's one of the interesting things about the cerebellum is whatever it does, it's below our level of consciousness. And in a way that that's good, it unencumbers us. We don't, when you reach for something, you don't think about it. Your hand just goes there. And in fact, people with cerebellar damage, they can move and they can reach for a cup, but they have to stop it. It's not very accurate and they have to stop and think about it. So the fact that we don't have to stop and think about it, it just happens unconsciously is in fact a big part of what the cerebellum uh, does for us. That is so interesting because I've never thought about the fact that I don't have to think about moving my hand to pick something up. That's really cool. When we when we teach this to our students, one of the first things we have to convince them of is that the calculations that underlie making movements are really complicated. We, we do it so effortlessly and so well, it seems like a simple thing. It's actually an incredibly complicated thing. It only seems simple because we have parts of our brain that do it so well. Wow. What about you, Nisha? How about you and how did you get interested in cellular and molecular biology? Because I think that's <laughs> what you did at UT before your master's, right? Yeah, my background's in biology and I actually took a developmental biology class here at UT and kind of fell in love with that. And that's actually what I got my master's degree in is, is uh, developmental biology, specifically inner ear development of a zebra fish, which is oh. so specific, but um, <laughs> Dr. Mock will, will probably know a little bit about developmental biology as well. That definitely um, is included in, in many things that they talk about in neuroscience. But I think I talked about this last time I was here was just being very interested in learning. You know, During my master's degree, I found myself just really fascinated by how I was delivering information, how students were learning. You know, I, I taught a lot of labs as a TA. You, you tend to, to teach a lot of labs, which are a lot of hands-on experimental. And seeing students um, learning through that model uh, really made me interested in, you know, why do we teach the way we do? What are ways that we teach or ways that people learn that's more, more or less effective? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote my master's thesis on that and then came to UT and started working at Sanger and started becoming, again, interested in what are the modes that we conduct academic support? So why is tutoring effective or why is group study effective? What are the different ways that we provide instruction, but also teach students how to learn? And so I got my master's degree in STEM education and um, took a wonderful class with Dr. Veronica Yan in instructional psychology. And, you know, if anybody, I, I highly recommend watching some of her videos as well. She's got some wonderful videos about learning. And that's kind of how I got into, into understanding a little bit more about what are the effective ways of learning and how can we get that across to students? Mm -hmm. Definitely a great topic for this time of the year right now. I know that my students, they're all first year students, they are gearing up for their second round of finals ever and they are just freaking out. And so every time they're freaking out, you know, we tell them go to office hours, make a study group, go to the Singer Learning Center, do this and this and this so that you review your material better. But at the end of the day, I don't really know what about those things makes it more likely for you to make a better grade. What about those things have you digest material and learn more effectively? And so I think for them and also for me, I would really like to understand a little bit more in depth about the psychology of learning and how we implement that and how it is actually effective. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I can talk a little bit. I know one of your questions was, what is it about Sanger programming? What are, What is it about or how we build our programs that help students learn? So at Sanger, we kind of think about our programs in two um, spectrums or two axes, if you will. And one of the axes is one-to-one -one services. So that means that you are getting kind of one-on-one -on -one kind of content, usually content expertise through like tutoring or something like that. So I, you know, I'm a student, let's say, and I'm taking Chem 301. I can set up a one-on-one -on -one appointment with a peer tutor who has been successful in that class. And I can really do something very individualized and very specific for me and kind of get my misconceptions or, or you know, really hone in on what's, what's not working for me, what I need to learn better content wise. And then we have what we call the one-to-many services. And that is things like group study where there is usually some kind of content expert in the room, but it's in a group collaborative setting. And we know a lot, there's a lot of evidence to show that collaborative learning actually is highly beneficial. And in fact, so I'm a constructivist. That's like an approach to learning that we believe that 
learning happens in interactions with each other. That's a lot of where, where learning happens. Um, and so I, I highly encourage students to think about if you are sitting by yourself and you are grinding through something and it's just not, it's not clicking for you. I think there's sort of an individualistic approach that may not work for you and going to something like a group study can be really helpful. So we have the sort of one-to-one, one-to-many axis. And then we also, like I said, have content services. And that is, again, specific to a lot of the STEM courses, but also, you know, history, you know, American studies, we have SI for those classes, we have other things like that. And then we also have more study skills approach. So it's not specific to a course, but it's just evidence-based approaches that we know work really well. So they're high utility strategies that you know, that will help you learn how to self quiz or do retrieval practice or help take better notes or do better reading, you know, more metacognitive types of reading strategies. So those that's a kind of two axes that I generally talk about. And it is based on this idea that there's context for learning, of course, like, I'm not going to study the same way for biology that I would for history. And so sometimes you need to talk to a content expert to kind of help you figure out the content. Sometimes you need more help on the study effectiveness side. And then also sometimes you need a, a personalized approach and sometimes you need a group approach. So that's why we provide so many, like a plethora of services. And we want students to not just try one, but try all. Yeah. 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 That makes me think about, you know, kind of, and maybe Dr. Mock, you could kind of fill in some of the blanks for this for me. We do talk about everybody's different, you know, everybody studies different methodologies, work different for different people. You know, what's going on under the hood that makes a group study session make you remember something versus a one-on-one session versus being by yourself cramming? Well, the one of the key principles that cognitive psychologists and cognitive neuroscientists have discovered about learning is that it needs to be effortful. When it's passive, it, it, we just don't remember that well. And it's particularly effective when we study through retrieval. So when you're sitting grinding things out, like Nisha said, you're just in your own head and you're just looking at your notes and you're looking at them again and you're looking at them again. But in a group setting, you're, you're talking, hey, what do you remember about that lecture? Well, I remember this. That's retrieval, right? Somebody had to retrieve that memory. We talk a lot about this in my classes and I, I find it useful to think of it this way. We have to remind ourselves that our memories are not tape recorders. We're actually mm-hmm. designed to forget most of what we experience. And obviously, we don't forget everything because colleges exist and we learn and such. And so, as it turns out, there's a set of rules that our brains use to determine what am I going to forget and what am I going to remember. And if you think about it, if you knew those rules, then that would constitute a really effective study strategy. And so, cognitive psychologists have identified many of these rules, and one of them is retrieval rather than passive. So, what does that mean? So, Student has notes from the class and there's an exam coming up on Monday. And so they sit down and they start looking at their notes and then they look at them again. And it doesn't take very long before they have this really strong sense that they really know those notes. The trouble is, is that number one, we have different kinds of memory and that one is actually based on what's known as familiarity. So the words become familiar, but that's a very shallow and very quickly forgotten form of memory. And this is really, I I like to talk about the fallacy of familiarity, that it gives, it's, it's insidious in a way. It gives students this sense that they really know it. Man, I, those notes, I'm so tired of looking at those notes. I know every dot on those notes. Well, then come right. Monday, they sit down for the exam and they can't, there's a whole bunch of things they can't remember. That's mm-hmm. the fallacy of familiarity. Instead, recall learning is like this. Instead of looking at your notes, set them down and see, and see what you can remember from them. From your own memory, recall them. You may have a lot of work to do. There may not be much. And then you glance and say, oh, I forgot this whole thing, or oh, I got that wrong. And then you do it again. But it's one of the cues that our brains take that this is important to learn. If we keep trying to recall it, I need this information. What was it? That's a cue to our brains to remember it. If you're just glancing at things even over and over again, that's not a particularly effective cue to say, hey, we should remember this. Interesting. I really like that you brought that up because I had had a conversation with some friends 
during a final exam season when I was still an undergrad. And we were joking about how like, oh, you know how when you're studying and you're convincing yourself that all of this is starting to look like common sense and so you stop studying. And we were joking about how the moment that we thought something was common sense, we knew it was over. That once we got to the exam, that definitely was not common sense. So that that puts that puts what we were talking about into very specific terms. And I really appreciate that because I always had this feeling that I knew I was wrong. But now it's, it's good to know that I was definitely, yep, I was, yeah. <laughs> well, professors experience this in a pretty heartbreaking way. So we have students come to our offices after an exam and they say, I studied so hard. Sure. I couldn't have studied harder. They'll, they'll quote you how many hours they studied. But when I got to the exam, I didn't know half of what I needed to know. And so then they'll make an internal attribution. I'm stupid or I, you know, I'm not. And right. all it really is is they fell for the fallacy of familiarity. They had a false sense that they understood it because it was familiar. And had these, all they had to do was study differently so that they understood it and could recall it. I tell my students, if you think about an exam, what I'm asking you to do is explain to me what you've learned. When you study, if, and this is the group thing, I think, you sit around a group and you say, what if the professor asked this? What would you say? Well, I would say this. Well, I would say that. Ooh, I like your answer more than mine, right? Mm-hmm. And so people are recalling. Uh, people are hearing other points of view. Oh, I like the way you phrase that better than I would have phrased it. And all of these things are cues to put it in a form of memory that's really uh, resilient. But mm, that, that's interesting. that familiarity thing is fleeting, and it's not resilient at all. That's why they come to your office and say, I knew this, but I didn't do well on your exam. They had just <laughs> made the wrong kind of memory. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And why do we do it so much? Because it feels good. It feels <laughs> easy. Yes. Good. Rewriting your notes over and yeah. over again is so easy. And it feels good. We, we learn familiarity pretty quickly, and it, it gives us this strong sense. And so in the moment, it's a very rewarding way to study. Wow, I just spent an hour. I know that stuff like crazy. Well, no, you don't. That's the, that's <laughs> the so it's, it's almost kind of mean that we have that form of memory because it lies to us that we know it better than we do. And I personally, all due respect to people who do get anxious, I I think many of the instances where people say, well, I don't do well in exams because I haven't test anxiety, what they have is that they have fallen for the fallacy of familiarity. Mm. They get anxious because they're doing poorly. They didn't do poorly because they were anxious. And if they would just study more effectively, and the sad thing is is they could study fewer hours and it would be more effective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we actually we do a test anxiety type of appointment. So I, you know, we're we're learning specialists. I'm a professional staff member and we have about right now we have about 8 of us and a large majority of us take test anxiety appointments and to Dr. Mock's point, test anxiety is not in the DSM. It's not like a diagnosable like a disorder or anything right, like that, yeah. you know, you it's not necessarily get, um, accommodations for it. You can't get accommodations unfortunately for it yet right. anyway, but to his point, I think that's a really important point is when students come to a test anxiety appointment, what I do is a two-pronged approach. I'm not just going to address your anxiety. I will. We'll certainly give you some techniques to kind of address the physiological and psychological things that are happening to try to self-calm. Because of course, when you're at that high level of anxiety, you can't really think exactly to Dr. Mock's point. A test is a thinking task, right? I think a lot of students don't also understand that. It's, it is not a an indication of your intelligence or other things, but it is like, how well can you explain these concepts back to me or to make inferences or to connect concepts that we've talked about? Mm-hmm. It is a thinking task. Part of your job on a test is to think. If you are at such a high level of anxiety that you can't think, you have to self-calm. But the second prong that we take is Let's actually look at your study strategies because almost nine times out of 10, almost nine times out of 10, the student will tell me I spent 50 hours studying for this test. And when I asked them, what specifically did you do? It was rereading. It was rewriting notes. It was even having flashcards, but looking at the back of the card to remember what was on the back of the card, right? So it's, yeah, (laughs) I know. Dr. Mock, he has his hand in his head. Um, Yeah. And that's absolutely what, and, and here, and like Dr. Mock said, very accurate. It feels really good. It's like a little, probably, you know, based on some neurotransmitter that it feels kind of good to 
to, you know, you, you get a little goosed by the idea of, oh, okay, did I get it right? Or, or okay, I'm looking at the answer. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember that. That's what the answer is. And it gives us a little bit of a flood of excitement that we, you know, maybe we got it right in the moment. But without any assistance, can you still do that? Can you still retrieve that information or even anything even more complex than that? You know, not just tell me the date of this historical event. Tell me all the sociopolitical events that led to that event. You know, that's heavy cognitive lifting that you have to do on an exam. And if you're not test, if you're not practicing that muscle, you know, I use this analogy with students a lot of, you know, sports analogies tend to work really well with students. But if you are working out only one arm, and that that one is very strong, but you are being asked to hit a baseball or lift a heavy weight with the other arm on an exam, that's or on a high stakes game or something. That's why it feels so hard on a test. And that's why nothing feels familiar. And you feel like you can't recognize anything, because of this idea of familiarity you know, that Dr. Mock was talking about. Yeah. How much of that do you think is because students feel like working harder and grinding harder is equal to learning the equal amount of things? Does that make sense? Like how, how much of this do you feel like students are just trying to do as much as they can and not thinking about how they can better do that? Because I I find, like, I agree with Nisha that a lot of my students are like, I'm struggling in this class. And I ask them, what are you doing? They're like, I literally rewrote all of my notes a million times. I went through so many sheets of paper and, like, I still don't know it. And it's just, I, I don't know. A lot of the times it feels like they are just able to say, like, I worked on this so hard, but the method of which they are working, like, they could have studied smarter instead of studying harder. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, to reiterate everything that Dr. Mock mentioned, the familiarity also makes you feel good. And also it kind of it helps us feel that we are being good students. I think with this like hustle grind culture that Mm -hmm. we exist in, you know, saying like, I stayed up 16 hours, and I haven't (laughs) slept in days. And, you know, the idea that I am working so much harder than everybody else or trying to compare yourself in that way. There's a little bit of that. But I think also, I tell students in learning specialist appointments, when I talk about retrieval practice, when I say, hey, I want you to do 10 practice problems, you know, in the next couple of days, I want you to put away all your notes, I want you to do it as if it were a test, right? So you don't have any materials with you. I tell them two things. I say, it's going to feel so strange, because you will not have any, any other access to anything other than your mind, what you remember, So it's going to feel very strange because all of the practices you've been doing have been, oh, my notes are here. I can check my textbook. I can check everything. So A, it's going to feel very weird. And B, you're going to get things wrong. Right. And setting people up saying that and like setting that as the expectation and like normalizing or destigmatizing that like incorrectness or like getting things wrong is somehow that's like bad or that doesn't mean you're learning. I think that's a really important thing to say to students that you're absolutely going to get things wrong. That's also part of the learning process though. Right, right. So I think that destigmatizing that, saying getting things wrong, I mean, that's often what we hear from, I think students really uh, misunderstand that if you're in class and you don't get a clicker question right, or even you're doing homework and you get something wrong, it's not an indication that you're a bad student or that somehow you're unintelligent. It just means that you're like, in the process of learning it. Um, And I think that's very hard for sometimes for high achieving students, especially right, who have been getting things right their whole lives. It's very hard for them to kind of internalize that. So there's this there's this difference between being active and being productive, right? So what are some changes students can make to make their activity productivity? Everything Nisha was saying, recall based learning, Mm-hmm. There's another key element, and p- students, and this really runs against this 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 gunner achievement mentality. There's a lot of evidence. So there's the concept that's pervasive through all neuroscience learning literature of spaced versus mass practice. That, and the easiest way to explain it is, let's say that you've got a total of three hours to study for an exam. A lot of people will sit down and do a three-hour study session. Better to do four 45-minute study sessions with breaks in between. It may sound crazy, but there's a fair amount of evidence that when you sit down to study something, anything beyond about 45 minutes to an hour is diminishing return. You're almost beating your head against the wall. And in fact, this is so important. There, there's a concept known as interleaving. So let's say that uh, she's, Nisha's laughing. Good. We're on the same. <laughs> yes. No, I mean... <laughs> 
all these all, all super well evidenced practices that we just don't talk about. <laughs> it's real simple. Let's say that you have two tests next week, right? And you've got five hours. You've got five hours for each to study a total of ten hours. Uh, first of all, don't do what everybody does, which is make a pot of coffee and study for five hours for exam A on Saturday and five hours for exam. That's the worst of all possibilities. Mistake number one. <laughs> Mistake number two, just just convince yourself that anything beyond an hour is kind of wasting your time. Yeah, that's a hard one. Okay, so you're going to space it out, but then you can also interleave. Study subject A for an hour, take a little walk, get a snack, study subject B for an hour, take a little walk, get a snack, go back to A. And here's the thing, that's actually a little harder. You have to mentally shift gears, but that effort, effort is another uh, another of these signals to your brain that you're making such an effort to remember this. Let's go, let's go ahead and stamp it in. Okay. And this is the effortful learning part. Uh, one of the other things that students hate to hear is everybody has their preferred modality. I'm a visual learner. I'm a verbal learner. I'm this. I'm <laughs> right. that. There's a lot of evidence that if, if you really want to learn something, don't use your best modality. That's oh, interesting. Because that's less uh, effort. I'm so happy Dr. Mock talked about that. You know, one of your questions that you had sent us ahead of time was about, um, you know, what kind of study practices could, you know, maybe ineffective or harmful. And I cannot state enough that this idea of learning styles is something that we need to eradicate from the K through 12 system and through the higher education oh system. My God. There's literally... Dr. Mock can probably speak to this. There's literally no evidence to show that learning styles is actually a thing. So we, I think it's a, it's an intervention that a lot of people feel good about because it identifies you as a specific type of learner. But actually, first of all, as Dr. Mock said, it's actually more effortful to try to, to learn something in a different modality. But essentially, you just want to learn in as many modalities as you can, right? So, and I also will challenge people, like I'm a biologist. And if I handed, if, if I, I mean, I'm a biologist, I know this content pretty well. If you handed me a paragraph of text that said, you know, described what a protein looked like. And I, I told myself, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a reader, you know, I, I only process through reading. I'm not going to be able to tell you what a protein looks like based on a set of text. You know, you need to yeah, see visual. You're like setting yourself up for disaster already, right? <laughs> right. So I think a lot of students can can be told in their K through 12 system, well, you're a visual learner, auditory learner, kinesthetic, and um, there's really no evidence for that. So it can do some harm if students are going through their classes thinking, oh, well, my faculty member doesn't teach me that way. So I guess I'm just out of luck, you know, oh, I don't well. know what to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I really think that that's, um, that's something that I would love to, to kind of wipe clean from many, many, many places that, that learning styles idea. There are learning preferences, as Dr. Mock mentioned. And, um, but yeah, trying lots of different modalities is probably the best, the best option. That's interesting. You know, there's, there's things that I do in my class and I teach a class for first year students on basically like how to get acclimated to college. And, and we do, there is a, um, an assessment on, you know, what type of learner you are, but I follow that up with a Ted talk that kind of says exactly what y'all are saying <laughs> is that learning styles are bogus. And it's been interesting to see people react to that. And like, why did you even make me take this assessment just to tell me that this is bogus? Like, well, I don't know. Why do you think I did that? And try to get into a, a deeper conversation about what is a learning style and why is that effective or not effective for me to think about? And, um, you know, it's interesting to hear that, uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, if, if your right arm is stronger than your left arm, then you're going to have to work harder on that left arm to get it to be up to the speed, same speed as your, as your right arm is. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, um, like I said, Dr. Veronica Yan, who's, who's, um, also in the, in the educational psychology department here at UT, um, she came and did a training for our, our peer educators. And she did, she, you know, presented a lot of wonderful research. One of my favorite, um, uh, experiments that they did on this idea of interleaving is that they, you know, because I think sometimes students are like, oh, yeah, that one, that's not going to work for, you know, a course that's, you know, that I that I'm not familiar with, you know, I, I need to study for five hours, because it's really hard material. Well, they took they took novices um, in an art, you know, with art history, like people who didn't have any experience with art or art history. And they uh, took two different groups, control and, and experimental control groups saw 
a block of paintings of the same painter all in one go. So like five paintings in a row of Picasso and then five paintings in a row of, you know, the next painter and so on. And so they, you sell blocks of them. And then the other group saw them interleaved, right? So they saw different, and they, these are like wildly different styles, wildly, wildly different styles. And of course, you would imagine that the group who saw it in blocks, most people would predict that the blocked one would get a better score when tested on, here's a totally new painting you've never seen before. Based on the style, who do you predict you know, painted this painting? Um, the initial results are that you know the people who saw the blocked do, do a little bit better, but over time interleaved students, so students who saw the paintings in a totally disordered style or disordered um, sequence do better. So it's actually so beneficial for you to be doing, as Dr. Mock mentioned, an hour of history and an hour of biology and then an hour of chemistry, like not doing the same subject for hours and hours on end. There's really just not a lot of evidence to show that that is beneficial for your learning. Wow. I would have never guessed because I was always that student in college where I was like, I have to do this all in one sitting or it's not going to work. But now I am learning that I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's the thing is um, to kind of talk about the worked part. And like Dr. Mock mentioned, the what feels good part. I think a lot of the reasons people don't yeah. do it, because it doesn't feel good. It feels right. so exhausting and effortful to do it. And that's why you know, we choose generally choose not to do it that way. But. It's funny. And, you know, when it comes to like working out, like <laughs> that's what you're looking for, right? Like you want to be tired and you want to leave the gym feeling like you gave it your all. Uh, but studying, I don't know. I don't feel like we feel good about ourselves when we leave the PCL just like wiped. <laughs> yeah. Cause like, I know that I always tell my students, they just finished registering, but I was telling them, you know, like, don't be afraid of registering for hard classes. Like hard classes are fun. And as I was talking about that, I realized that all the classes from undergrad that I remember learning the most from were the ones that kicked my butt. Uh, the ones that I had to really, always, really struggle always. to get through. Yes. <laughs> yep. But all of those classes that were really easy, I can't tell you a single fact from those classes. <laughs> oh, that's so telling. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, there's things that professors can do to tap in this as well. And one of the, I, I tell my students that very thing. I make my class difficult for a reason, not, not, not to suit my ego or not because I'm sadistic or just <laughs> my student, but because they'll remember it better. And it will engage a form of learning that will last a lot longer than if we just kind of coast through the material. Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Mock, what are things that you do in your classroom that other professors who aren't neuroscience experts doing in their classrooms? Oh, gosh. Well, I'm talking about neuroscience for one thing, but no. <laughs> <laughs> one, one of them that I've started to do just in the last two or three years that I'll admit is not always popular with the students uh, is that there's also evidence that as part of this theme of struggle is that there's a, there have been some very clever experiments that show if you, if somebody struggles with a concept and they even, they even don't get it. Uh, and there's a sense of failure. And then you come back sometimes later and, and explain it to them. They'll understand it better and they'll, they'll remember it longer. And so there's something about struggle that is, again, one of these signals. And it, it's very counterintuitive. You would think, well, when I'm struggling, I'm moving in the wrong direction. Uh, it's not true. So, for example, I tell them flat out, look, the homeworks are very hard. I make the homeworks hard so that the exam will be easier. They like that second part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, for example, many of my homeworks are, are I, I've written them, to their little programs that run in their browsers. They're virtual experiments. And so one way to do that, I'm, they're literally uh, recreations of famous neuroscience experiments. That uh, it's, a, it's a thing with me. I, science is a form of discovery, but then a lot of times when we teach it, we just tell them the answers. And I, I try to like factor in the sense of discovery and not just the Yeah, the process. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, w one way to do that would be to say, give them a list. Here, here's five things. Test this. Make this graph. Uh, plot this against that, uh, because that's what the famous scientists did to do that. And sometimes I do that. And sometimes I just explain to them the premise. You're record 
This is a virtual recording from a squid axon. And you can do this and you can do that and you can measure this. And then I just say, discover something. Hmm, leaving it open-ended. Yeah, and it becomes a, a bit of a, a personality test. There, 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 there's a set of students who uh, are not happy with me. <laughs> who really sort of fall into the sense and they'll come back and I've had people literally slap a piece of paper down on the podium as they're turning in their homework saying I didn't get anything out of this and kind of stomp back to their chair and then they would come back and tell me later you know I didn't get it but then when you explained it in class I realized I was so close and, and there was something about that whole thing. They'll never forget it. They'll never forget that concept because they were so close and frustrated and didn't get it. And then there it was. And it was so easy when it was said that way. And so I, I asked people, one of the things that I ask my students is trust this process. It's not always fun. It, you're going to have low frustrating moments, but trust it as a process. Yeah. And it's well, not, that's, those are those magic moments. It's an act of faith, and some of them do, and some of them don't. But uh, I feel compelled, like like you and many others, that if, if this is what we know about how learning works, then we should inc- we should teach in a way that encourages our students to learn that way. Absolutely, yeah. I warn a lot of uh, first year students about the fact that you know these introductory courses with three or four exams and that's it is kind of the opposite of what the best educational practices are and and i'm sorry for that and a lot of it has to do with medieval tradition <laughs> uh in in the university uh you know not just ours but you know throughout time it, the original universities you only took one test <laughs> right uh, which isn't what you know psychology and neuroscience and education are telling us are the best ways for people to learn. It's these having lots of chances to get it wrong with low stakes is ideal, but not all, not all courses are designed that way. Well, let's see. Uh, I think we probably have time for this, this last question. And this one is definitely a speculative one as we're still in it. And, you know, there will probably be be decades of, of study uh, about it um, after this time period. But what do you think the pandemic is doing to our ability to learn and um, our students, how they're learning in class virtually? Um, and what do you, how do you think that'll impact us as we move back to being in person, at least at UT? Well, like you say, it, this is speculation, but one thing that I sort of hope it's reminded us all of is that education is more than watching a video and writing down some facts and then repeating it to somebody. And here, here. <laughs> when, we get, when we get away from the I'm going to lecture and you're going to take notes style, as long as we get away from that, I, I think I hope what it taught us is there is kind of a magic to being in a classroom. When we're using, when we're using the classroom well uh, and following these principles, uh, there's a reason we come together and there's a reason that we have these buildings and, and, and it can be effective. And, and, and it's meeting on Zoom and watching videos that were recorded last week are a poor substitute for that. And I, I hope I, in the same way that when you've been sick, then just you gain an appreciation for how nice it is to just feel well. Well, <laughs> I hope, right, yeah. I hope when we can all get back into the classroom, we can all be in there and just sort of appreciate the fact that we're able to be in the classroom and engage it more and, and use the magic to, you know, generate and use the magic that can happen in a classroom. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. You know, like we have these tools, we've got technology as a tool and the book is a tool and lectures are a tool, but not every tool is right for every situation, right? There are some situations where in-person learning is probably better and there are others where virtual learning might be better, but it all comes down to, is this the right tool for what I'm trying to teach in this environment to these students? Yeah, yeah. I and I do agree with you, Dr. Mock, about just the magic of the classroom. I feel like, you know, as much as I love our Zoom discussions with our students and everything, and I know that they're able to get a lot out of it, I just feel like being in person and writing off of the energy of other people around you really, really helps with the learning process, especially when you're really deep in a conversation or a discussion about a difficult topic. I think that being next to other people and witnessing kind of like 
the fireworks going off in their head when they make a connection is just so special. And I, I cannot wait to see that one day. But for now, I, Zoom will do. Yeah, um, I will say one thing that we've been talking about at Sanger as a staff is just um, realizing that there are going to be some folks who are coming to the university who have maybe had close to two years of like virtual learning, (laughs) which, um, you know, as Dr. Mock mentioned, it has been a plethora of different modalities. Some have been like, here's a pre-recording and, you know, go ahead and watch it and take down what makes sense and um, maybe, maybe respond to some discussion questions. You know, it really just depends. And then some faculty have done an amazing job that I've seen who have been able to really engage students in a different way and use a lot of really amazing technology. But um, I think the thing that we're really concerned is a yeah just students coming back coming to the university maybe for the first time or coming back to the university and that just being a jarring experience to have to like develop more interpersonal skills and be able to interact with others when they haven't really been able to been able to or, or been um, been doing that in the past maybe two years and you know just some of the again you know we talk a lot about um, study skills and some of the, the sort of basics quote-unquote basics you know things like note-taking or reading effectiveness um, and again this isn't any this is not me saying anything inherently bad about students it's just if you've been doing this for two years um, and you've just been watching recordings of things, or you've just been kind of been sort of been and been able to be passive, that's just a thing that we're concerned about as students coming in and feeling like, wow, I'm maybe not equipped yet to to really engage in these classes um, in the way that my professors are expecting me or for me to be successful. So, I mean, this is just us- my usual plug to to send students to Sanger if they need <laughs> yep, help. Yep. Well, um, we will, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just definitely a thing that I want students to know, like, we're thinking of you. We know that the last two years, close to two years, will have been kind of a really bizarre learning experience for some of them. And we recognize that that's um, going to be an adjustment. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the need for, you know, in, in some of the support work that we do. I think we are going to have to, you know, that'll be one of the, the the tips we add to like tips for getting the most out of class, like not only where you sit, but you know, how much you engage and like actually asking questions and raising your hand. And it's been real easy to just kind of be cameras off and passive. But as, as we start to transition back, I think we're going to have to coach our students to, to take risks in the classroom again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because something a lot of my students have said is that they have been treating their online lectures as if it is a podcast. So they're listening to like a chemistry 301 lecture as they're cleaning their room or doing their dishes. And that is just the most passive way to learn that I could possibly think of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And y'all asked, y'all had a question here about flipped classrooms. And that's definitely... I think a lot of students really um, are not expecting that type of uh, instruction. Really, like, I mean, it's it's called flip for a reason because a lot of the learning, the kind of content, the the sort of like learning the facts and the and the you know the definitions and and things like that that happens on your own or you know by yourself, and then going to classes where application happens. And so, um, I do think that that's going to be a big change from having my camera off and not not really listening or, you know, kind of that passive approach. It's um, some of them are going to come to to campus and and have to be in those classes and it's going to be a real head changer. So um, hopefully they, they start to recognize, but again, as all of the things that Dr. Mock and I have talked about, it's like, that's how deep learning happens. It doesn't maybe feel as good or may not be as familiar to them, but that will really create deep learning for them. If you don't mind, I'd like to give a plug for Sanger as well. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I, One of the things I tell my students is do not suffer if, alone. If you're doing poorly in class, don't suffer alone. Now, I usually mean that in terms of come see me, go see a TA, but don't just expect that if you don't change anything, you're going to do differently next time. And UT has so many of these things designed to help students and if you're having trouble, make use of them. These people like Nisha, these people are there. They're experts. They're very good at helping you get around whatever problems you're having. So don't suffer alone. For sure. You, Solid Mark. advice. Thank it. you. Yeah. Thank you. You know, we tell them all the time. We tell them all the time. But usually what we hear is they'll go to one appointment and they come back and they're like, oh, my gosh, you were so right. It was so helpful. Yeah, I don't know why I put believing. it off for so long. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. great. We'll definitely be plugging that again as finals comes up. 
But thank you y'all so much. I got a lot out of this. Definitely rethinking some of the study tips that I used as a college student. We'll definitely be adjusting what I say to our students as well. Because I I was a big proponent of the study style. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that was a good eye-opening conversation. Yeah. Thank you all so much. You know, it's always great to be able to bring in people that are smarter than us to talk about these things. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for helping, I guess, the prestige of the podcast, bringing your expertise uh, with us here today. We we really do appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It was fun. Yeah, anytime. We just might have you come back for something else in the future or, you know, we'd love to put together a presentation or something that, that kind of gives gives our students some some better better information about how they can study smarter, not harder. And I know that you all have a session like that in Sanger. Um, so any anything we can do to, to partner, we're down to do it. Same, absolutely. Well, that was a fantastic interview from Dr. Mock and Nisha. I really I enjoyed that. so much. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of it, I feel like if I was a freshman and um, an older student came and told me any of that, I would not listen. I would not listen to a single word they're saying. <laughs> but we did invite yeah, the experts. Yeah. That's why we bring exactly, in the experts. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think that freshman <laughs> me would have listened to a professor of neuroscience and the assistant director of the Sanger Learning Center. I think I would listen to those people. Yeah, um, it was really telling, you know, (laughs) how great to like, be able to take a class from a professor who knows the best way to help your brain actually learn the content, right? And you know, when Dr. Mock was talking about how his assignments are really kind of him trying to recreate famous science experiments and forcing his students to make those same discoveries... It struck fear in my heart. Um, I think I would be so scared (laughs) to be in his class. But I also feel like I would really enjoy it because now that I, um, you know, am out of college, I realized that my last two years of college where I was taking more upper division classes that really expected me to, you know, do a ton of work to learn a certain concept. Those were the ones that gave me a ton more skills and how I think about other concepts, too. And so I think that think that ultimately right. he's right let that really is how you learn the best i think there's a lot to what you were saying about you know the hardest classes are the ones that you remember the most like you maybe hated it while you're in it but on the other side of it like maybe you have the most appreciation for it like certainly the class that i'm always talking about was i had a class in grad school in you know, I always talk about how that was the hardest class that I ever took, but I got, I also got an A in it and I still remember a lot of the things from that class. And, you know, maybe I remember less from some of the other classes that were a little bit easier. Yeah, definitely. And something else that just really shook me to my core is when all three of you said that learning styles are fake. And to be honest, that hit me about as hard as if somebody (laughs) told me astrology was fake. I think I would have also shut them down. But (laughs) because I, believe in astrology but um you know what i i was listening to dr mock and the whole thing about how yes you might have a preferred method of learning but that method of learning might not get you to learn as much as you would like to because it's so much easier for you and you should challenge yourself to learn a little bit more um out of your comfort zone and so i think i think i really took that to heart um it was definitely an eye-opening conversation because i was not expecting that at all Mhm. Mhm. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the the easy way is never the best yeah, way, yeah. <laughs> right? Like uh and using some of the the sports analogies or the workout analogies, like we're always looking for like the easy fix, right? Like what's what's the easy way to like get an A? What's the easy way to lose weight um or get in shape and, you know, the, the answer nobody loves to hear is like, you know, eat right and exercise. And I think the same thing kind of is true for, for studying and learning is, is, is to push yourself, you know, learning should, should be taxing and it should be something that you have to work at. If it was, if it was easy, yeah, everyone sure. would do it. Right? So like I was talking about earlier, a lot of my students registered this week and a lot of them were asking me, you know, Christina, what's the easiest elective at UT? Christina, what was your easiest class that you took? Can I take that class? And I'm just like, I will not be telling you. 
Yeah. Usually when students ask me that question, yeah, when they ask me that question, I send them to a link. I send them a link to another university's <laughs> course schedule. <laughs> I should start doing that. I should start doing that. Because one, I don't think I took any easy electives. I think my only easy electives were like the the physical education classes, but those were really hard because they forced me to work out. I don't like working out. And so I don't think that I even had any easy electives. Yeah, and they're they attendance, attendance based too. Based, and they're all like super early mm-hmm. in the morning. So I can't think of a single easy elective. I think a better question to ask is, what are the most interesting electives or the most unique electives or like a great professor that you recommend? But if you're going to take an elective, you might as well take one that you care about, that you find interesting, something that won't bore you to death. And, you know, taking the university's easiest class will most likely bore mm-hmm. you to death. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, you being interested in in whatever you're studying is always i think the first step towards being successful in that class or in that subject right uh is taking an interest in you know every subject has lots of different lenses to look at it through right like so it's just about finding that lens that works for you in any particular subject to to really make it come alive and be more interesting for you you know it's it's, it's it, you know just like what they talked about in the in in the interview too is is not just studying the same thing for the whole time right like mixing it up and i you know i use tv as an analogy and i know in 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 the binging world you know most people are used to watching like a whole season of the same show uh that's not how i like to watch tv and i know that's <gasps> that controversial but there's a TV. reason why <laughs> i know i know but there's a reason why for years and years and years shows are only an hour long uh, right like because that's about how long you can focus on one given story or subject and then they would go to a totally different show with a different set of cast of characters that you don't get stuck in like the same way of thinking like over and over and over for hours and hours and hours uh so anyhow you know but i know that i know that's very controversial that's that not the way take. uh that's not the way tv is uh yeah. <laughs> uh it's consumed these days i guess yeah. well that was really awesome i am so glad that we had them come this week they definitely both combined have um you know, way more knowledge than both of us have combined on this topic. Yeah, and so that was a really great learning experience for us. Hopefully it was a great learning experience for our listeners as well. And we know everybody's heading into finals and the year's almost over, so hang in there. And congrats, y'all. I mean, we made it through what has to be one of the weirdest years in the history of the university. So everyone should be proud. I'm proud of us for getting this podcast up and going and running all year long. So thank you all for being part of this journey with us this year. You're all going to do great on your finals. We believe in you. Remember, treat us like a great podcast to listen to when you're cleaning your room, but do not treat your chemistry 301 lecture (laughs) as a podcast for cleaning your room. That's good advice. That's good advice. Well, I guess that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, My name is Phil Butler. I'm Christina Bowie. And until next time, we hope that all of your endeavors are a success.